what's going to sideline somebody that's got a, a, a life in crisis is is not because they're lazy. It's because there's other stuff going on, and maybe they just don't want to share it with management because maybe they don't really trust management. And so, if there's a third party that they trust and who has a relationship with management, management, whatever level that is, then they can work through it and keep their job. And again, that's sort of, I think that's part of what's so interesting about the source model is it really is a separate, confidential organization um, that allows our people to go have the conversations they need to have about whatever it is that they need in their lives. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cartavera, a leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business and grow your lives. We're also now excited to be a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, a network of podcasts to help enrich your leadership, grow your businesses and enrich your lives. Today, our very special guest is Mark Peters. He is the CEO of Butterball Farms located in Western Michigan. And the title today is Be the Source building a mission and culture committed to enriching the lives of your people. Imagine that. You see, over 25 years ago, Mark made a decision that that would be the mission of Butterball Farms. He's a second generation family member leading the business, and he decided that that's what the company would be all about. Yes, they needed to focus on profits. Yes, doing their job well and creating quality products. But Mark made the decision and committed to it that his people would come first. He did this in the midst of all sorts of challenges. His father, who was running the business, has passed away. Mark steps into leadership with virtually no support, no training, nothing, but makes this fundamental decision to do what he believed was the right thing. Look out for your people. Along the way, Mark and another group of CEOs and community leaders founded something called The Source, It's a not-for-profit that helps hundreds of workers navigate the personal challenges that are simply the reality of life. It is a fascinating conversation, and most important, we're going to talk about how vital it is to not only have the mission, but to go all in with that mission and what it takes to lead an organization that is people-first and committed to enriching the lives of your people. Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We're excited to be here today. And I'm particularly excited because as I was reading the background of Mark Peters, our guest today, I was struck by the uniqueness of it, this mm-hmm. focus on frontline leadership that we don't, I don't hear a lot about. And so I'm fascinated to hear about Mark's approach to leader. Currently, he is this chief executive officer of a company called Butterball Farms. Many of you have probably heard of this organization. Yep. Nationally recognized as one of the best and brightest companies to work for mm. for the last six years, maybe even seven years. My math might be off. Mm-hmm. 2015 to 21. It's a second generation family business based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
America's leading producer of culinary butter and margarine, and it creates custom butter flavors for some of America's biggest brands. So we know the business you're in, but I would argue it's a people business from what I'm reading. Here, Mark. <laughs> uh, you, Mark started as a factory worker in his father's company when he was 12. Wow. Uh, there's an experience. And what it taught him was the challenge that the frontline workers face. Uh, at 30, he took over the company and was determined to lead an already financially successful business that would also enrich the lives of its workers. Hmm. I mean, talk, that, that's a vision that we need more of today. We're going to talk more about that. In 2003, Mark organized a pioneering group of CEOs and community leaders to found something called The Source. It's a not-for-profit that helps hundreds of workers navigate personal challenges that interfere with their jobs. And by the way, also delivers an average annual return on investment of 200% to its partner organizations. That means proof right there that if you take care of your people, they take care of the business and take care of the returns. (laughs) Amen. I also want to highlight Mark wrote a book in 2020, his first book. It's called The Source, Using the Power of Collaboration to Stabilize Your Workforce and Impact Your Community, which is all about his journey from concept to creation of The Source. So welcome, Mark. Uh, thank you, Jeff. I'm it's honored to be here, and I'm I'm glad that uh, we got hooked up. That's a fantastic introduction. <laughs> what really resonates, and Mark, you know, I gave you, I we did the intro, but give everybody a little bit of the background story, the behind the curtain piece of that story. Yeah. So you know, I mean, I grew up in a family business, and I so I have a I have a mentor and coach who's helped me along for a lot of years. And um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, pretty much an extreme introvert. So he told me that I should go out and do some public speaking to overcome some of that. And he said, it didn't count until I got paid for it. <laughs> um, so I'm like, well, what am I going to talk about? And who am I going to talk to? And it, it turned out that that family business groups, um, I found a high degree of, of resonate my story resonated to a high degree with a lot of family business groups because this theme of growing up in a family business there's there's a lot of similarities and yet you tend to think that you're all by yourself Mm. um and so i would go out and talk about my experience with my dad and i and i had people that would come up to me and be they'd say well that's my uncle that's my mom that's my my dad um and so it's sort of one of those like you know myths like like there's just this common archetype in in sort of family business but um so my dad was a tough guy i mean he, he was he was um he was pretty relentless and he wasn't very emotional and so when i was 12 years old he said no more summers at the family cottage for you um it's time to go to work and you you can work in the yard or you can work in the factory <laughs> well i i was you know, I thought I'm, and this is actually this kind of the, some of the stories in the book, but um, I chose working in the yard and I was also a severe allergy sufferer as a child. Oh, so yeah. after, after three days, um, it became evident I was going to work in a factory. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and that really started that, that I've always said, if my dad had not wanted me to be aware and empathetic of, of some of the problems that frontline workers. And um, as I've learned, a lot of workers, not just frontline workers experience in their lives, he should never have put a 12 year old kid in a, in a factory. 
um, because I started to get to know people. I mean, you, you work 10 hour days and they're great people. And you realize, I realized that their problems were very different than the problem. I didn't have any problems. I went home to a great suburban home and Things were taken care of, so that was really the starting point. You, you know, Mark, I'm glad you brought that up because I've personally seen it. So I'll limit it to what I've seen. I've worked with a lot of family businesses, and the difference between often second or third generation businesses that CEO president who started at age 12 or something like that with the frontline people versus the family members who didn't. Yeah, work in the business early and they started at a more of a corporate position. The lack of understanding is is so palpable and gets in the way of the culture of those organizations. So often they don't really get it, what their people went through versus the person who was in the trenches says, I get it. And I've, right. I've, I've now run this show, but I, I know what it's like and I can support them and encourage them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, I spent a lot of years working, you know, working in a business and, and uh, I did some, I, I worked for some companies outside the business for a while. Um, and my, my dad died. My, 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 I was, my dad was 55 when I was, when I was born. So, so we have his first wife, his first wife passed away and I have six older half sisters. I'm the oldest of my mom's three kids and I have two younger sisters. So, my family background is um, eight sisters, no brothers. Oh, and wow. my, my dad, very traditional, you know, I'm the only boy. So, um, you know, this is, this is kind of your job to, to take this on. But um, so, yeah, I, there were, none of my siblings were involved in the business. Um, but I, after he passed away, and I was 30 years old, I really did not understand what I was doing. I mean, I, did, I, I tell people that I had an accounting background, but I didn't have a finance background. And there's a huge difference in running a business between knowing how to balance a checkbook and actually, you know, knowing how to buy capital goods and, <laughs> you know, manage a balance sheet, all that yeah. stuff. So in the first five years of running a company, I, 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 we were really working on the cultural stuff and I almost bankrupted the company. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, so, so I, and I, again, I, I sort of talk about this whole, the, the whole evolution of this in, in, in the book, but I, I, um, I legitimately, I think that's one of the things I actually like about my own story is I think some people will, will come at some of these things that I talk about in the book and the, the way that we've decided to run this company from they're always like, well, when we get profitable enough, we'll start doing that. <laughs> I, I literally, I would never have made it if it wasn't for the commitment of the people. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd be hiding out in Mexico, hoping the banks wouldn't find me. <laughs> wow. um, so, I mean, it truly was a group of, of people within the organization that helped me figure out what was going wrong and how to fix it. Um, in some really, you know, long days and lots of mistakes um, and, and fixing it. So, so. Sounds like the team's really important in there. Well, it also sounds like there were two different development opportunities for you. There was one inside the company, and I'm guessing that your dad 
taught you a little bit about that, or maybe it was other people within the company that, that taught you about the business in there. And then the other piece was you said that you, you work outside the company, which I would imagine really helped frame what you had there as well and saying, you know, these are the things I liked about Butterball Farms and this is what I didn't. So maybe explain a little bit about those two. Sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would, I would say my background is primarily an operations background. I mean, I, I grew up on our plant floor. Um, I, I worked for Keebler Corporation as a, as a sales, a sales rep kind of position when I was in college. Um, and then I also worked for McDonald's actually in the, on the restaurant side for a while. Mm-hmm. which also is, it's a pretty operations driven job, you know, the yeah. uh, running, running their restaurants, but there's also a, there's, you know, the employee, the employee interaction piece and the, and the customer interaction piece. Um, but none of, none of my jobs outside really had any financial focus. So okay. I, I really, other than the fact that I had an accounting degree, mm-hmm. um, you know, true finance on the ground was not part of, of my training other than trial by fire in the, in the organization. So when you were 12, 13, you were getting involved in the company. Did your dad start talking about business at the dinner table and getting you helping to change your mindset some, or was no. that not what, what you talk about? No, no. My dad did not talk about work at home at okay. all ever. Um, you know, and, and sort of, um, I don't know. Our, I guess our financial training at home was like, if you break it, you pay for it. Kind of thing. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I kind of joked that my dad, my dad, one day I, I came into my dad's, uh, he had an office in our, in our home. And I, I went in and I had a friend of mine that called and said they were going to the movies and I wanted to, you know, would he, would he give me $5 to go to the movies with my friend? And I was like in junior high or middle school, I guess now is what they call it. But uh, my dad's like, well, I got five cars. I'll give you a dollar to wash each one of them. And I said, well, they're going to be here in like 15 minutes. And he goes, well, I guess you're not going to movies and you're washing the cars for free. (laughs) So, so that's the kind of training I got. I'm like, if my dad offered money, you took the money and you problem solved whatever else was on the table. (laughs) Wow. So Mark, I'm really curious. You've talked about working at other companies and what I'm fascinated by is was that your choice or was that your dad's suggestion because yeah. some family businesses the prior generation says you've got to work other places yeah yeah you no can't just be here yeah no and i actually i work for land of lakes um and and maybe we can get into some of the land of lakes story here at some point but uh no my dad was not uh it, it was it was not one of those things where he thought um, going to work for another company would benefit my role in, mm. in his company. Um, so part of it was just getting like a job in college that, that worked in, in my schedule. Um, and the McDonald's thing was kind of interesting because we're suppliers to McDonald's and I was at a supplier's meeting with him and the guy offered to the, our buyer offered to have me go to their Hamburger University, mm, which is wow. which they have a fascinating program, and it's That's mostly a big deal. It is a big deal, and I, and it was um, it was ten days of pretty intense training. Yeah. Um, but in order to do that, I had to work in a store first, 
And then I did so well at Hamburg University, the store wanted me to come back and keep working for him. <laughs> so I, I think my dad sort of felt like, well, here's one of his biggest customers. He can't really tell him, no, I don't want my son to do it. So I, again, I, my dad was not pushing for that interaction. It just, it kind of happened. Huh. Yeah. Well, well it seemed like, I'm sorry, good. Now with Butterball Farms, you're now second generation, right? Right. And is, is the company different in how it, it relates to people inside and outside the company now than it was when your dad was running things? Oh, I sure hope so. <laughs> okay. I, no, I would, I mean, I would say yes. And I, you know, people are like, that's great coming from me. Cause that's my job to say yes. And it's my company now, but you know, like when we've had student groups that want to come and do it, do an interview and they're like, well, can we talk to some of your employees? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Go talk to any of them. I don't care. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that sort of gets at the, um, you know, the book that I wrote on the source and, you know, we're a small, we're a small company. We're, I don't know, I think we're maybe 140 employees now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I don't have the scale that some of these larger companies do to, to take care of some of the issues that, that people have on our, our plant floor. And it's, um, you know, the other thing I've learned is there's lots of, lots of people with private enterprises that want to do stuff for the people that work for them. And so they, they sort of pick off program, like they'll have a loan program, they'll have a smoking cessation program, or they'll have an EAP program because they know there's, you know, depression and substance abuse and all kinds of other things that people deal with. Um, but there's, our lives are so complex um, that it's, it's really hard for smaller and mid-market companies to, to have a holistic approach to what people in their workforce experience on a day in and day out basis which is sort of what led me to try to do this in a collaborative model with other, with other businesses, Hmm. because at the end of the day, I wanted to be able to um, meet the needs of, of people that work for me so they could continue to be productive at work and not lose, you know, employment and development opportunities because of stuff that happens in their lives which I'd just seen happen over and over and over again with, with people that work for us. They didn't, they didn't lose their jobs because they were lazy. They lost their jobs because stuff happened in their lives. You know, their childcare provider didn't show up. Their car broke down. They couldn't pay their rent. The, the, something broke in their house and they had to fix it. And they didn't have the money. It was all kinds of stuff that ended up with them losing a job when they most desperately needed it, as opposed to knowing that they could keep their job because there was somebody that could help them problem solve that. Mm. Um, and so that's ultimately what we created with the, with the source, but I had to do it in collaboration with other companies because I just didn't have the resources to do it. Mark, I want to go back to what I see as a decision point. It sounds like you took over that you stepped into leadership of the company when your father passed away. Yes. Right? You're 30 years old. The company's been run a certain way. And it, from what we'd said earlier, at 30 years old, stepping into potentially a crisis situation, you say, we're going to change how we do business. And we're going to focus on enriching the lives of our people, which you said took the company 
in some way, you ended up on the brink of bankruptcy. So it wasn't <laughs> smooth sailing the whole way. So you make this decision to change the course of how the company does business internally. And you stuck with it yeah. as this brand new. Talk about the, that time frame and those moments. <laughs> what was going on? Oh, my word. Um, yeah, those. I mean, I think back on it. I'm like, I don't even know how I did it. Um, so it's so there's there's actually there's sort of two things going on. One is is this whole shift of the internal culture. The other thing is changing externally the way we we sold our products. So we, my dad didn't like selling into distribution. So we're in a, we're on a food service side. We you know we service the the restaurants around the country, and so he would every time he'd get a big hotel, he'd sell directly to like a hotel or a convention center and and sell around like. Cisco and U.S. Food Service and all the big distributors. Um, so I decided to go directly with with distribution, which is how we ended up growing the business pretty pretty quickly. And that, again, fast growth, not understanding capital. That was kind of where I was doing where I I starved. I I learned how to I learned how to grow a company on fumes. <laughs> but in hindsight. But my focus was not on on any of that. My focus was really on all of this, on on the, the culture stuff. And I remember we did, you know, we had a consultant that came in and we did the mission statement, guiding principles, um, good to great was kind of like it had just come out, I think. And and uh, uh, you know, so we we went through. We had a, a we had fifteen people maybe that we went off site for a couple of days and we came back with this mission statement and there, there were like 12 or 13 guiding principles. And I remember being in my apartment at the time, trying to learn this. I'm like, this is my company. This needs to mean something to me. <laughs> and, and, and I wanted it to, because we had all this investment from all these people. And I just went back to them the next day and I'm like, guys, I can't, if this doesn't mean anything to me, this isn't going to mean anything to anybody else. Hmm. And, and, and I said, that's not what I want this to be. And so we kind of scaled down this, the, the group. Um, and we came up with the mission statement enriched lives, super simple. It resonated with what we wanted to do with the business. And then um, we came up with six guiding principles to support it. And uh, we've stuck with those ever since. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. I've been a Beta Gamma Sigma member for the last 20 years. If you're looking to hire, the right candidate is closer than you think. Beta Gamma Sigma is the International Business Honor Society, exclusively for students at the top of their class in the top 5% of business schools in the world. BGS members are academic achievers, skilled leaders, and experienced problem solvers, and their skills and experience extend beyond the classroom. They hold chapter leadership positions, attend global business summits, complete ethics trainings, and engage in world-class internships with top corporations. When you hire a Beta Gamma Sigma member, you are truly hiring the best in business. For more information, email bgshonors at betagammasigma.org to learn more about how to hire BGS members. 
This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube. Welcome back. What are the things that you do to assess and reward adherence or alignment, should I say, with those guiding principles? You know, that's that's actually one of the things we're we're talking about right now because we haven't been you know, what you, what you measure and what you reward is, is, you know, what you get. And we haven't had a very good structure in place for actually like having bonuses be linked to mm-hmm. adherence to the guiding principles. Um, so as I'm trying to, trying to sort of move to what's next for the company and the, and the, the company leadership, it's becoming more and more important for there to be some set of metrics in play, like cultural metrics in place that report up to like a board level and are part of a corporate scorecard. Um, but you're in that when you're there every day in a small company, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of easy to tell who's, who's helping people and who's being a jerk. Right. Right. And so, but when you're not, it gets a little harder. And so um, that's one of the things we're working through uh, right now. So I'd actually, recommend uh take a look at our very first interview which was with david Akers, and he has a really interesting way of tracking and rewarding the the alignment with those guiding principles or his core values really interesting that's, that's awesome i will do that because like i said i've got uh i've got my first commitment for a board member and we're going to she and I are going to be talking about some of the metrics that we're going to need at a board level. So that's, that's a great suggestion. Yeah. So that's episode four, I believe. Okay. I'll yeah, send you the link when I send some follow-up. Okay. Fantastic. You know that. Cool. Uh, so Mark, a question you alluded, made this reference earlier that a lot of leaders will say, we're, we've got to wait till we're more profitable. Right. And we'll <laughs> focus on the people stuff. Yeah. And it sounds like you very consciously didn't do that. Right. Or it sounds like you thought about that and said, no, we're not waiting. We're going to focus on people first. And um, talk about that thought process for you. You know, I, I it's, <laughs> you get a lot of questions like this and it's, and, and I, I think that I, I want to be a little careful about, you know, hindsight because the reality is I didn't think a lot about it. I mean, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to figure out a different way to run the company and how to take care of these people. Hmm. Um, and, and 
and make the workplace a place where they could support a family and they could not. So one of the quotes that, that comes out in the book is when my dad passed away, there was there were people that said, Butterball Farms is a place you get a you you go to work while you're looking for a job. Oh, you know, ouch. right. And so what I, I wanted the company to become a place that people wanted to come to work, yeah. you know, and they could they, they could start building a, a career and a, and a future and take care of their families. So, hmm. um, yeah, so it required a big a big cultural shift. And I um I really did focus on that to the financial detriment of the company. And, you know, what, what was a debt-free, profitable company when I was 30 years old was, um, you know, almost twice as big in revenue, but completely leveraged and nearly bankrupt five years later. Wow. Um, and then it took me another 10 to, to dig out of that. And, and at one point, so at one point I had this idea of like, oh, let's turn this into a, um, uh, an ESOP. And my CPA firm said, well, you actually have to have like equity before, <laughs> before you can do that. I'm like, what? Well, you, the, you, I was in a negative equity situation. Wow. So it's like, like there, I was so leveraged that whatever I would have got for the company wouldn't have paid my debt off. <laughs> so they're like, you really can't do an ESOP. I'm like, oh. <laughs> So it took me 10 years to get to to go from that point to to being, you know, really financially stable. So gotcha. Now, when your dad died, was it an, an immediate transition to you running the company or was there something that happened in the interim? No, no, it was no, it was it was it was pretty immediate. And were you ready for that? Were you being groomed for that position? I would say no. I mean, okay. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, if I had been ready, I think we, there's a lot of, again, yeah. from a financial standpoint, we'd have been way farther ahead than where we are. Okay. And so how supportive you, was the, was the rest of the leadership team when you started making some of these changes to be, to me, a more a human centric company? No, they within a year, most of them were gone. Oh, wow. Okay. Cause they just wouldn't, they, they didn't, they didn't function under that level of, um, you know, take care of the people around them. It wasn't, the, okay. it wasn't their culture. Hmm. So, so Mark, you said, as you were sharing that story, you said you made this shift in the culture to focus on the people enriching lives. And you said, I believe quote, I did that to the detriment of the company. And yeah. Some people have maybe just will hear that and say, see, that proves you shouldn't do that. Right. So I guess say more about that, that decision. Yeah. And you stuck with it despite the financial challenges. You know what? I'm glad you actually, I'm glad you asked that question because you're right. I, I, I should reframe that statement and say, I did it to the financial detriment of the company and not because it was financially detrimental. It was because I wasn't, and again, this is this goes back to my distinction between accounting and finance. Like, I didn't go to a like I didn't go to the bank when I could have when the company was profitable in the beginning and say, "Hey, we're looking at doing some expansion. We're going to put some new freezers in. 
I'd like to get a capital loan for this. I'd like to take it out over a five-year term. I just paid for it with cash, like paper. Oh. Meanwhile, I'm growing sales, right? And I don't understand that in order to grow revenue, you're going to carry more inventory. You're going to carry yeah. more work in process. You're going to be buying more supplies. That all takes cash. Yep. So, so the financial failure was really my lack of knowledge. It wasn't because I was focusing on the cultural things. In fact, if I had not been focusing on the cultural things, when I came up against the like six weeks, you're out of cash problem, my people would have all left. Wow. The, the solution that, that I outlined in, in, the, in the book that, that where, where I really got everybody on board in, in fixing it came around realizing that we were making, we were producing 18 pounds packed for labor out, which is just a, it was just a number I came up with to, to use as a metric. And we needed 22 pounds packed per labor hour just to break even on our, on our cash flow. And so, and I had to get there in six weeks. Hmm. It's like, it was, and I look back on that and, and, and think that's a pretty impossible situation, but we did it. I mean, we, I mean, me and a lot of other people did it. Um, but that we were there because I didn't understand finance not because we were we had the the you know this focus on culture but it was being able to rally the people that were there and have them trust me that mm -hmm. I was being transparent with what was going on yeah um that they pulled their they they threw their full you know weight and enthusiasm in in helping fix it a lot of people consider that to be a big risk to say oh okay this is the situation are you with me? And, and some people could just walk. Right. But you'd already built the trust. So did you feel yeah. confident when you laid that out for them? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't have a choice. Have a choice. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, again, it's, it's like, I, I want to be, I, I want to be really, you know, transparent about the situation. It wasn't like, you know, sitting behind my desk in my office, thinking, "Huh, this what this is probably what I need to do." I wonder if people are going to go with me. I had moved my office. I had moved my desk to the production floor. I mean, I was measuring anything that moved. You know, we were in crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and so I shared everything with everybody because it's like I, I don't know what's wrong, but there's something wrong, and we gotta fix it. Wow. You know, Mark, you, Mark you, you highlighted something there that I want to make sure we talk about because I think so many people face this. You, talk, you answered Craig's question and you said most of your leadership team was gone yeah. after you took over. And you talked about coming up with this mission that said enrich lives, two words. And I'm going to guess that you had people on your team that said, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, We make butter. Right. <laughs> yeah. Where's the butter? Where's the, you know, where's the butter in the mission? Right. What can, talk about the kind of the support you got or didn't get and how you navigated through that. Yeah. So you got to remember, I started working at the plant when I was 12. Um, and so and, and, you know, you sort of asked, like, how did my dad groom me? And again, I've got all these stories, some of these stories, not all the stories, but some of the stories in the book. Um, but my first day of working in the plant, my dad got the plant supervisors, put them together in his office and said, this is my son. 
If he does anything wrong, fire him. Don't come talk to me, just fire. So, you know, I started out thinking, and my dad didn't bluff. This is not, this is not a guy who's like, he didn't, never raised his voice. He never bluffed. So I started making a lot of friends. I mean, I, I just got to know the people that I worked with. And I, so the, the management team, the, and my dad didn't, it was pretty flat organization. So there's really only like three people that we're talking about. <clears throat> they were not, um, they were not really interested in rolling their sleeves up and trying to figure out ways to, to run a more people centric organization. Mm. And so, I mean, I hired some other people. It wasn't like I just like got rid of those three people and just said, Hey, I'm going alone. <laughs> sure. I didn't, I didn't do that. Um, so we got hired like a good HR person and, and, uh, you know, an accounting person and, and, you know, we, we we're building that team. So one other question I have about that time, and I want, I want to talk more about how we made this happen and the, and the, the concepts in the book, this, this collaboration concept. A lot of folks in leadership today and in the past were influenced by the people they worked with. Yeah. That's where they got it from. You've basically said the way you chose to lead Butterball was not what you taught from your father. Right. It was not. Right. And you've talked about working on the line. Maybe that's it. But where did this all come from for you? Because <laughs> it wasn't modeled for you. Right. Um, you know, I have a, a lot of people ask me that question. And I don't I, I, I haven't come up with like a really great answer other than. Um, my, my mom was very empathetic. So probably some of it comes from, from my mom. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to an inner city Christian school. Um, so part of that's probably part of that, that story. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know how you work alongside of, of people, especially, you, you know, think about your, I mean, you guys have kids, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm better mm -hmm. on it, but, but, you know, you're, when you're 12, 13, 14, um, you're pretty impressionable. So you're, you're yeah. spending a lot of time with, with people who are, um, you know, their biggest hope for their kids is that they stay in school and they don't, they don't join a gang or they don't get arrested or something yeah. like that. It's not, you know, what college are they going to go to or what career are they going to have? I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, it's not even out that far. And, and that, so that just the, the, the big difference between what I witnessed at work and what I witnessed at home, I, it just bothered my conscience. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say from a, from a sort of business role model standpoint, the, um, the DeVos and Van Andel families uh, from Amway are in, they live in West Michigan and they started their business in West Michigan. And, um, you know, Rich DeVos has always been a big people first person and he's written a few books and his son was in um, was in my class and they went to our church. And mm. so I had some exposure to to Rich DeVos and, and I read a number of his books and I would go to any lecture I could whenever he was talking. So I would say I got a fair amount of that influence probably from from Mr. DeVos. Mm. Interesting. One one phrase I didn't hear in that, it's just how, but it is what I heard in it, Mark, was 
it sounds like for you, it was just the right thing to do. It just felt like the right thing to do, treat people I, well and take help take care of them. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's um, a good way to put it. <laughs> now we're in the process of building a more human-centric organization. What were some of the pitfalls that you found and what were some of the successes that, that surprised you? Oh, my word. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of them. I, yeah. So I can tell you, I mean, sometimes it's the best to, to illustrate with a story. I can remember a, a conversation with, with my head of HR. Uh, we had, uh, we had some, we had some, like a spike in orders and we were asking people to work some overtime. And, and so, you know, our software system locks people out of the building if they're not on mm. the right shifts or whatever. So we were asking people to come in early and somebody was coming to work at three who usually comes to work at seven in the morning and they didn't have their badge and the, the security people wouldn't let them in the building and they had to go home and then they were late. Oh. And I was like, and, and, and again, remember I've got, I grew up in the plant, right? So, so this person came in my office and she says, I got written up for this. She's like, I'm, I was here. I was ready to go to work. They wouldn't let me in the building. And my head of HR, then I'm sort of talking to her about it. And she says, well, we have to have these policies. You know, we have to have consistency. I'm like, well, the policy's bad. She goes, well, she said, I don't know. It's not bad. She, she said, I, I said, well, we got to change it. She goes, well, we can't change our policies. And I, and I literally, I was like, it's you and me. I think we can change the policy. <laughs> Good for you. But, you know, I think you get, you get people who are, are, and you've got to remember that, that when you're running a company, you can change the policies. Yes. Like if, if they don't make sense, if you've got people who are dedicated to your organization and they're running into these structural problems, fix it. Just yeah. fix it. Because you can. <laughs> I, I probably I, want to review those on a, on a regular basis anyway to see if some things are outdated or don't make sense anymore. Oh, man. I mean, you know, we're going through that right now with, with all of the, you know, COVID and work schedule stuff, oh, yeah. right? I mean, and, and so you run a traditional manufacturing and you've got traditional operations people. And, and now we're, we're talking about, you know, how do we accommodate part-time schedules, people coming in and out of the, out of the plant, needing to be home for, you know, kids that are on, on yeah. Zoom programming. And, and uh, um, so really being able to have a, a willingness about looking at those policies and being able to, to be agile about it. For some people in traditional organizations, that's just really hard to do. And um, so as a leader, you, you sometimes the temptation is to just give in to the organization that you created. <laughs> and that's, you can't do that. Yeah. So in your case, it sounds like, you know, those in production, they have to have hands on, they have to be there for the work, right? You have flexible schedules to allow things to happen differently so that they can be with their kids. How did you manage? How did you navigate this? Yeah, I'm so we and again, we've we've tried to push some of that to um, the, the team leader decision making process. So. And I mean, it's we. I'm sure this is another another topic for maybe a glass of red wine or something that's <laughs> off, off air. 
Um, but this is kind of my issue with with policy versus, you know, more localized decision making. Yeah. Um, I think the same thing happens in an organization. If you can push some of that decision making, like if you're a team leader or whatever that that management level person says, hey, you know what, Joe here um, needs some time off or we need to, to, to work with a variable schedule with him right now. Um, you got to just trust that leader and say, yeah. OK. Well, you know, see what you can do. Make sure he's plugged in with the source in, in, in our case, and and uh, you know, when you can work with him until we get back to a regular schedule. So we try to we try to allow the the you know the manage the managers the area managers to to have that kind of control to be there for the direct labor workforce. So Mark, to, to that point, one of the things, we had a guest, and I'm, I'm not sure who it was, so I won't guess, who talked about the, his belief that going forward, in part because of the COVID realities, one of the things leadership's going to require going forward is a lot more flexibility and willingness to have inconsistent treatment, mm. whereas yeah. traditionally it's been, we have to treat everybody the same, right. it's not fair. But you sounds like you're embracing the reality of no, we've got to have we, it's, it's we're going to have these differing situations. And if you empower your team members, they might create something that's different than this team. Right. So talk about that decision to allow for more flexibility and perhaps inconsistent policies <laughs> to meet situations. Yeah, you know, I think that that's that's interesting. And I and I that's probably another one of those. Um, podcast you should send me a link to um i think that's part of the reason we like working with the source is is it's hard to write policy for sort of this ever-changing environment right um one of the one of the phrases we use with the source is a trusted knowledgeable relationship so if the source comes back to hr and says hey we have a situation here trust us, we've got it in hand, um, then, then we do. Um, but I think, I think you're right. And I, I don't, there's something about what you said about consistency and, and inconsistent. Um, it's always interesting to me because when you, you write policy and procedures, um, you often think about what you need. <laughs> and not necessarily what the people who are going to experience the policy need. Oh, so good. And and the other thing that I've learned over the years is most CEOs and senior leaders in companies truly don't understand the complexity of the lives of the people that are working for them. Right. And so what's going to sideline somebody that's got a, a, a life in crisis is, is not because they're lazy. It's because there's other stuff going on and maybe they just don't want to share it with management because yeah. maybe they don't really trust management. And so if there's a third party that they trust and who has a relationship with management, management, whatever level that is, um, then they can work through it and keep their job. And again, that's sort of, I think that's part of what's so interesting about the source model is it really is a separate confidential organization 
um, that allows our people to go have the conversations they need to have about whatever it is that they need in their lives. And then the source can come back and advocate more for those kinds of specific, variable, non-constant or inconsistent, however you want to call them, needs. And we all have them. Yeah. We all have them. It's just, you know, some of us are better equipped from a network standpoint or a resource standpoint to deal with them than lots of other people. So when you talk about the source, let's let's maybe clarify this for the listeners as to what exactly the source is. It's a separate entity that multiple companies utilize for assisting staff. Yeah. So, so the, you know, again, if we go back to sort of those early days when I was bankrupting the company and working on culture, um, it was a, it's, it was a collaborative of what ultimately started out being six different businesses mm -hmm. that said, we want to try this. Okay. And it was set up as a separate 501 C3. Mm -hmm. And it, its goal was really to do two things. One was to do barrier resolution, keep people at work. And the other thing was to um, get, find community um, training and education opportunities to be able to get those in aggregate for our companies. Um, and so, yeah. And so we were so successful after the first year that we just kept, we kept going going with it but it's so it's a collaboration we have we have 18 different partner companies now and and, and it yeah. covers about eight thousand eight thousand employees are eligible to to take advantage of the of the resource of, of this organization wow so, so mark talk more about that that sounds in some um the collaboration part feels unique yeah um there's a lot of organizations out there that say they provide uh, i think they call them employee support networks um there might be a more formal name it, it seems like you've created a new model for that especially the collaboration piece so give right. us some more examples of how it actually provides support what actually does it do right um i wish i had a graphic i could put up because every every year there's like uh, there's like 50 or 60 like legitimate different things they do for people so it it could be um, it could be related to childcare. It can be related to transportation. It can be related to rent, um, utilities. Um, so, I mean, through the source, I took a public speaking class. I mean, so they, there was edu education provided. We do, they, they brought in English as a uh, second language mm -hmm. teacher. Actually, at one point, they brought in Spanish classes because because there were enough organizations that wanted some of their their folks to learn some Spanish so they could talk to the, some of the workforce. Um, they they've helped people relocate parents, you know, senior senior living assistants. Um, they've helped people fight uh, the IRS, work through like like some kind of a tax lien situation. But again, these are all things that come up in people's lives. And it shows up in your mailbox and you're and you've got a $20 an hour factory job and it's the IRS. What do you do? The first thing you do is bolt because they just threatened to they just threatened to, to garnish your wages. Hmm. Right. I mean, because you have no one in your world to help you process that. Wow. And the source can do that kind of. Thing. 
So the sources are basically a group of problem solvers and resource um, resource accessors in a sense. That's, ex that's exactly right. So the source itself is not, I would say the source is an expert. The, the source team is an expert at finding the resources. Awesome. That, so, that sounds so good. They work with, I think they work with like 55 nonprofit organizations around West Michigan wow. to find resources. And are most of these, uh, sounds like Mark, but I, I want to make sure I've got this right. Of those, I think said 8,000 employees. Yeah, roughly. That are supported. Are they predominantly these frontline workers? Well, no. So like, so for our company, it would be all of our employees are eligible to use the source services. Um, gotcha. And so we have some of the member companies are, are have, you know, higher, higher wages, more professional work teams. Um, I think one of the, one of the more recent member companies that joined was Herman Miller. And so, you know, you think about a company that's got a great reputation for taking care of their people and you sort of say, yeah. well, why would, why would they join the source? And um, I've got a little quote from them in the book and I'm going to, I'm going to miss this exactly, but basically what they did was in a survey, there was stuff that like their EAP plan wasn't getting to um, that. And they just, they were kind of surprised that some of these issues were coming up in their, in their workforce. Mm -hmm. And since joining the, the, the source, they've been able to actually create yet another, a, another benefit um, for their employees. That's taken care of some of these immediate things that come up in their lives. Wow. That's the word I was looking for EAP. So the employee assistance programs um, that I'm familiar with and what I'm liking about the source, it's because a lot of EAP, they're great. I mean, they're important. Right. And they're designed to help the whole person, but they typically say, we've got a solution that's available to you. But what I'm hearing the source is, you said, come to us with your problem and yeah. we'll find a solution. Right. Well, and I, and I think there's a lot of times this stuff comes up with a certain level of immediacy, right? I mean, an EAP program, and, you know, I don't, I mean, we've had one and we have one through our insurance company, but you call them and then they can schedule a call and you've got a, a counselor or somebody that you talk to. But if you need somebody to help you like talk to your landlord to negotiate rent or to go call the utility companies and work out a budget program or teach you how to do that, your EAP is not doing that. <laughs> and they're not doing it tomorrow. Right. Yeah. Wow. Good, good point. Yeah. You don't want to have your, any of your employees out on the street because they couldn't pay the rent. But that's, but that's, a re, I mean, that's a reality for a lot of yeah. people. And that's, I think what makes this kind of a, so um, I think I, at one point there was, there was something about, you know, like paid benefits or whatever. Um, I thought it was a question, uh, but you know, the, the, um, that when in the introduction you were talking about the 200 percent ROI. Mm, right. And so so we pay, we pay to be a part of the source. And we have some agreements in place. So we we agree, because if you're working in collaboration, you've got to have agreements. We agree that um, a job, if somebody, if, if the source works with an individual three times, it's considered a job save. And a job save is worth $3,200. Uh-huh. So, so now 
again, the, the focus of the source is to keep people working, right? Not to lose their job. And, um, and that's how we get, our, we get our ROI. That's the biggest number. There's other numbers um, involved in that as well. But um, what I think say that, about, I'm sorry. No, I think that when, when you can take chaos out of a system, there's real value there. And so if, if, you can, if you can provide something that helps stabilize people's lives and they, they stay with your company longer and they're more engaged when they're there and they recognize that that, that um, reduction in instability or, or you know, chaos is, is a benefit from their employer, they're, they're a lot more engaged. They're a lot more dedicated to, to, to being there. Um, and there's a true value to that. I mean, there's an economic value to not having to go replace that person, to not have to retrain what they've already learned. Hmm. And um, so that's, that's where the source really earns its money. Well, I got to say, I think you're undervaluing your return on investment. <laughs> if you, if you, I think you said the job save was $3,200. Right. Right. And we all know that if it, for a legit job save, it's a lot bigger return. So that 200% return is uh, understated, in my opinion. So it's yeah. given a lot, adding a lot more value, bottom line financial return than you've even given it credit for. Yeah. Well, and, and Jeff, I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the things I've, I've learned, again, going out and talking to businesses about this is very few companies truly calculate their cost of turnover. Yeah. And and when they do, the number's so high they don't believe it. They truly <laughs> yeah, they just true. they don't yeah. believe it. Yeah. So again, we've got to get to agreement. So if I I mean we've run our number it's somewhere between five and seven thousand. So you know if I go to an employer and say, you know, it's it's five thousand dollars every three <laughs> they're they're gonna they're not gonna buy in, right? I mean we want people to join this organization. So you're right. It is I agree with you. It's low. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's why it's so impactful. And I think right. that the, yeah. the, the thing I'm loving about this is, and I don't know how thoughtful this has been. I love that organizations, this got created with a willingness to see the differences in the people mm. in that I, it's easy for me. I, and I, I cringe at this now because I catch it more often. Someone will say, well, you know what you got to do is you're stressed out. You got to go get a massage every week. But you're talking to someone who's saying you're telling you should go spend fifty to hundred dollars every week to get a massage that I can do when they're trying to put food on the table. Right. There's a complete disconnect of the experience. Right. Right. Hmm. When I talk about I talk about that in my book, I talk about about the realization that I was working with people who were making a choice between between buying clothes for their kids or buying food for their kids. Oh, wow. I mean, and they were working for my family. I'm like, it's not right. It's not right. Yeah. Wow. Um, but you're, you're right, Jeff. It's that, that context is, is, and, you know, you start looking at the statistics, you know, what if 40% of Americans live below the Alice threshold and, you know, we can disagree with the numbers of the Alice threshold and all the rest of it, but, to think about something like 40% of the American population living in, in with, with complex and somewhat unstable lives, mm. it's very hard for any employer 
to say, oh, I don't have any of those people in my life. Yeah. I, I, I just, I, 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 unless you're working for yourself by yourself and you are completely problem free, then I, I, would I would challenge your assumption. Now, would you say that the source also makes you an employer of choice? Um, hmm. You know, <laughs> I would say for a lot of people, I mean, we have, we have people that go to the source and say, I'm, you know, I'm ready for my next job or whatever. Um, but I want to go to work for another source company. Oh, interesting. Um, so yeah, I, at some level for sure. I mean, there's a real realization that there's companies that are a member of the source have a certain way that they, that they approach the people that work for them. Gotcha. Um, at the executive level, um, you know, I, I would say my, my team now is the people that have, have come on in our key roles have joined the company and they say it's because of the, of the culture of the company, because of our yeah. values. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would say it is, and, but not everybody wants to work in that culture. I mean, I think some people choose, you know, I want, I want more of the private equity model. I want to, I want to drag the profits across the line every quarter. Yeah. That's okay. So, so Mark, you've touched on this, I think, a little bit, but I want to ask the question directly. In rolling this out, so this this is going now 25 plus years, you made this commitment to yeah. do it different. What has been the biggest challenge to walk in this talk? Uh, internally or externally? <laughs> uh, both. Let's do both. That's great clarification. You know, internally, it's it becomes it it becomes it's the pragmatic things that come up in a business, right? Like we don't have time to do the training. We can't let people do that. It's that it's that you know people over policy or policy over people stuff that it comes up all the time, especially as you're as you're growing the the business and you know we're five six times bigger than we were when my dad ran the business in terms of, you know, revenue and profitability and whatnot. So um, you've got more structure. And so people don't want to, they don't want to mess with the structure. And, and what ends up happening is, is people become victims of the structure. And, and how do you, how do you, how do you fight against that internally? So that's, and that's just an ongoing problem. And you've got to be, you've got to have your internal champions for it. And externally, I think you hit on it with that, like the ROI on the, on the cost of turnover. Um, it's just a hard, unfortunately, it's a hard sell that doing the right thing is also good for business. It so um, is. But yeah, I, I've, I've, got, I've got years of proof and I've got a, <laughs> a long string of people's, people who are working in great careers now that don't work for us, but they, but they've got these great jobs and professional careers with some of them master's degrees that they would never have had if they didn't start working for our company. Well, Mark, I, I just, this is the word, the phrase that's coming to mind is shouted from the rooftops <laughs> and uh, because I'm a believer and I, I love the way you've shared your story and the commitment you've had to it. And you have, in my opinion, it is so disruptive, unfortunately, because it is so against the grain, because 
every level of your company, I could see others saying, well, it doesn't work there. Like you have a lot of frontline workers. People yeah. go, well, no, this is really important for the, the gray collar and white collar environment. Yeah. Going, no, I'm focused on the, ba- the the most basic human deliverers of a service and effort right. and making a difference in their lives and enriching their lives started. And I'm going to say this. It feels like it started with a personal commitment that you sure. made and said, this is what I care about and I'm going to do it and I'm going to find a way. And I and I'm and you haven't you may have had doubts, but you haven't wavered. So I applaud you and all that you've created. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, Mark, this has been so rich, uh, it's just so wonderful. Um, definitely going to share this with the world. <laughs> uh, Mark, we love to give our, our guests an opportunity to share or highlight, promote anything going on in their world. What's, what's that for you today? Well, I, of course, I, of course, want to promote my book which is the source. Um, and and it's, it's, you know, I appreciate you saying you want to shout it from the rooftops. And uh, I actually have a rooftop scene in the book. Um, this is part of, it was one of my aha moments. But um, I think you're absolutely right. This is a personal commitment for me. And I want to see more businesses run like this because I think it's people that have the opportunity to have influence over an enterprise where people work, where we're gonna actually see change. And this maybe gets to that comment I made about policy versus more localized decision-making. Most of us that have the opportunity to run a business are so connected to these social problems um, through the people that work for us. And we rarely think of it that way. We really think of it more in terms of oh, you know, my politics or my boards that I serve on or this, that, or the other thing. But our most direct con- our most direct line to these social problems are these people that work for us. And that is exactly the environment we have the opportunity to have influence over. Yes. Yes. It's all about impact. So that's, if, there, if there's one thing I can do for the rest of my life, that's it. <laughs> Wonderful. That's a worthy goal. <laughs> So, Mark, what is what's the best way for people to connect with you? Um, so, uh, my email address is is markpeters at butterballfarms.com. We also have started an i it's called i three leadership dot com, um, which is where we're we're posting the information about the book and and there's contact information there. Um, it's a small I, it's a dash, it's a three, and then it's word, the word leadership. We'll share all that in the notes. As you know, Mark, we always wrap up with a couple of signature questions. <clears throat> and the first one for you is tell us about the wisdom. <laughs> What's a piece of wisdom that we haven't or maybe haven't shared today? So, so how much time do I have for that one question? <laughs> uh, don't make it difficult, Mark. It's no, no, no. <laughs> okay. So, so I got to tell version. you, super quick story. I had the opportunity to to sit with an inner school, an inner city um, public school principal. Her name was Ruth Jones. She ran one of the most difficult schools in West Michigan, and uh, when she took over the school it had some of the worst numbers that that were that were we had in West Michigan. And by the time she was done, 
they had some of the best numbers. People were lying to get into her district. Um, when she took over the school, kids were not, they weren't eating before they came to school. They were coming to school with, you know, not having clean clothes, not having shoes, all kinds of issues. So she put in washing machines, dryers. She started feeding the kids and her teachers were rebelling. And they said, that's not our job. Our job is to teach these kids. And she said, look, these things are all the barriers that are getting in the way of us teaching the kids. Yeah. So we're going to own responsibility for the problems so we can teach the kids. And my lesson, and I think it's, it's one of the things that I, that I tell people all the time, is it's like, look, you can have an excuse for all kinds of things. But as soon as you start saying, you know what, I'll take responsibility. I'll fix that problem. I'll fix that problem. I'll fix. And then guess what? Now you have power to make change. As soon as you own responsibility, you get to change stuff. And, and like that, that, <laughs> that to me opened a window. It's, it's like one of those aha moments in, in, my, in my early, you know, early days of, of running our company that I was like, this is like magic. Like I just take responsibility and then I get to fix it. It was beautiful. And, and, and honestly, it's probably been one of the most impactful leadership principles of my life. That's amazing, Mark, because a lot of people wouldn't take responsibility because they would have to fix it then. But yeah, you're but saying you, that's, that's the joy that drives you. Well, that's how you ultimately get to do what you want to do, which is <laughs> yeah, teach kids or change people's lives or whatever. But right. if everything is a barrier and you use it as an excuse to not do it, you just end up being, in my mind, I think you end up being unhappy and, and, and kind of cynical. I don't know. I, I love that for two reasons, Mark. One is it really resonates with me about taking responsibility. I know I'm pretty sure I know I've got it. I don't know on how many programs that's a slide. It <laughs> says taking responsibility is the path because that's now I can do something about it. If Great. I don't have responsibility, there's not, I'm waiting. I'm in, actually, I've said it this way. If you don't take responsibility, you'll always be a victim. <laughs> yeah. Right. You always be a victim. You're, th yeah. That happened to me. I couldn't do that. And I, and I also love the, the removing of barriers because in my coaching work, most of my work is about helping people remove barriers. It's not about helping them to figure out the new best way because the right. new best way still won't work because there's still a barrier. Right. Let's get rid of the barrier. How about, right. <laughs> let's change the game. Yeah. I love that. A lot of those uh, barriers are in between our ears. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Sometimes the barriers me. A lot of times the barriers me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and the other question, I, I, uh, I know we're at time, but I want to ask this question because I'm so excited to hear what the answer is. <laughs> What's that movie or that character or scene that speaks to you about leadership? Okay, this is going to come way out of the blue because I was like, I saw this on here. It's, called, it's a movie called The Replacements, <laughs> which have you heard? Yeah. Do you know it? This is the one with um, Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I used to make my management team watch this movie over and over again. <laughs> and because, you know, here's a situation where they've taken people with these disparate backgrounds and they create a, 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 you know, winning football team, but they really are looking for the good. You know, what is, what is that specific great thing this person brings to the game? And then how do we get them to really be passionate about putting it to use? Um, you know, and you've got Gene Hackman's an interesting character in that movie too, and in that he's, he's just supportive of, of 
Keanu Reeves doing this crazy stuff. Um, I mean, as a movie, it's, you know, the critics probably panned it. I don't know. But, but from, <laughs> um, there's some really interesting leadership lessons in that about, you know, sticking to your mission. You know, what do you do in the face of conflict? How do you, how do you get the best out of people? Um, anyway. I'm glad you brought that up because the other lesson that popped in my head is, you know, they have that one quarterback who comes back to play. Yeah. And he's got more, he's got better talent. Right. But he doesn't have leadership. Right. Keanu Reeve have because Keanu Reeve be, built relationships, built trust. Men wanted to follow him and they didn't right. want to follow the talent. They followed the heart. Yep, exactly. Good yeah. stuff. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you for all that you brought today. And, and I say this at the end of most episodes, but I, this has got more heart in it than I think ever before. Thank you for what you've created. Thank you yes. for your commitment through, through the challenges at Butterball and creating the source. Cause man, I have no doubt it's made a difference in hundreds, if not thousands of lives and families yeah. already and will for generations because you said, this is how we're going to do it. And yeah. you took responsibility. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate the time. This, is, this has been fantastic. Really, I appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to your favorite podcasting app, rate us, give us some comments, share some love. It helps us to get our message out to more people. Thank you so much. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com confident to find out more. See you on the inside. Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, but my life? Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analysts at Lashifre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics than hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts.